0: The Best of Our Knowledge explores topics on learning, education, and research. On today's episode, with a massive multi-year expansion project finally completed, staff and educators at the Strong Museum of Play are eager to welcome new and returning crowds. And after two college-in-prison programs in New York collapsed, the Bard Prison Initiative is picking up the slack. I'm Lucas Willard, host of The Best of Our Knowledge. This is The Best of Our Knowledge. I'm Lucas Willard. The Margaret Woodbury Strong National Museum of Play is not your typical museum. Located in Rochester, New York, The Strong is devoted to the history and exploration of play. With a massive multi-year expansion project finally completed, staff and educators are eager to welcome new and returning crowds. The Best of Our Knowledge is Jody Cowan took a long-awaited tour and brings us more.
1: The Strong Museum of Play has been on my personal radar since about 2019. I had come across the Strong's social media account on Instagram, highlighting their latest nominees to the National Toy Hall of Fame, a long-standing and annually updated exhibit at the museum since 1998. As a father of two elementary school-age children, one of our favorite family activities has been visiting our local art, history, and children's museums. I knew after a glimpse online at what the Strong had to offer that I would have to take the three-hour trip to check it out firsthand. Unfortunately, just a few short months after learning of the Strong Museum, the COVID-19 pandemic would keep us home. The Strong Museum closed for three months in 2020 before reopening, first to members only for a few weeks and then to the larger public with additional safety measures, limited capacity and some exhibits closed. I put my plans to visit that year on hold and spiraled into the toilet paper and hand sanitizer hoarding existence that many of my neighbors fell victim to. A year later, in the spring of 2021, the museum announced that construction would begin on a 90,000-square-foot expansion, including an updated admissions area, a 17,000-square-foot outdoor park inspired by the board games of Hasbro, and a new 24,000-square-feet wing to explore the history and development of video games. I again pushed my plans to visit back, reserved to patiently await the Strong's final form. And on June 30, 2023, the completion of the expansion project was announced. After securing a two-day pass for my family, we at long last headed to Rochester for a weekend at the museum. (laughs) Navigating the Strong Museum is as simple as letting your imagination take control and following your own unbridled curiosity. With over 100,000 square feet of exhibit space spread across two sprawling floors, there was more to see and touch than the two days I had planned for allowed. Highlights of the visit for me and my children were some of the short-stay exhibits, like one that featured a look at the history of dolls in America, another showcasing the famous playthings of millennials from Beanie Babies to Tickle Me Elmo, and another celebrating the history of hip-hop and play, complete with the displayed chrome MF Doom mask. My daughter, at age 7, was thrilled to find hands-on exploration was encouraged really everywhere, but especially in the Play Pals exhibit, which featured a life-size dollhouse and another space that had a full-size play supermarket modeled off of a Wegmans grocery store, complete with scannable products. My son, age 10, found himself in gamer heaven, frequently losing himself in the arcades of classic joystick cabinets from the 90s or pinball machines from the 80s or older. We were all in awe of the nearly 20-foot playable version of Donkey Kong, billed as the largest in the world, and then warmed by the calming effect of the Dancing Wings Butterfly Gallery. With so much of the focus on fun, it's easy to forget that the Strong is actually a history museum, housing the International Center for the History of Electronic Games, the Brian Sutton Smith Library and Archives of Play, a home base for the American Journal of Play, and the Woodbury School, which offers educational programming for pre-K and kindergarten-age children, the Strong Museum is one of the largest history museums in the world. Overseeing the Strong's education team is Dr. Tiana Velasquez-Smith. As assistant vice president for education, Tiana is responsible for the development and implementation of all public education programs and activities at the museum, including the museum's on-site Woodbury School. I was able to speak to Tiana after my trip to the Strong, and she explained to me how embracing play is actually embracing learning
2: play is a part of the human experience. And so it's not surprising that you're experiencing play in one way. And just because you're in in a different age from your children, that doesn't mean that they're also not experiencing like another element of play or that they're not looking through um, the experience through a different playful, youthful lens. And so play is a human experience. It's also a human right. I think what we forget um in in a society that's often you know tends to be anti-play after a certain age after you get out of preschool and elementary school you forget that as an adult you have the you have a full capacity to play um and so that's how we look at it from a design standpoint um chances are if a child loves it why wouldn't an adult love it and if an adult loves it a child would also love it too. Of course, there's some developmental scaffolds that have to be set in place. Um, But back to my point of it being a human experience, that's, that's, and it's a universal desire. We, all of us as people on this hot rock have a desire to play. Again, it's just, do you have the space? Are we in the society and the capacities to be able to play all day? That's, that's the bigger question, I think.
1: With Play as the central focus, what are some of the educational goals or benchmarks that you have set throughout the museum?
2: Absolutely. Definitely making our educational offerings as equitable as possible, working with stakeholders to ensure that um, our community has access to the wonderful exhibits that we're talking about right now, making sure that they have access to our school programs. And so really working to increase that footprint and ensuring that you know, it's wonderful to have this, you know, beautiful building and and all of the wonderful exhibits in, inside of it. It it then means less and holds less value when not everyone is able to come in and enjoy it. Um, and so that's something that the museum is tirelessly working on to ensure that every single community has access to the space.
1: Do you have a favorite age group to lesson plan for?
2: Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Um, definitely K-1. I am a former kindergarten teacher. I'm a kindergarten teacher at heart. I taught first grade for a little bit and they have been less impacted by the socialization of being a human on this planet where they're still really close to their play habits. They are still really imaginative. And I don't have to teach those skills. I don't have to really cultivate them because they're already there. It's already who they are. And so that's what makes lesson planning for that demographic really, really fun, just because they've been, they're closer to you know, their youthfulness and their and the joy that they bring, um, just being happy with themselves and, and simple things. Being excited to see what their bodies can do, being able to make a mess and a not, you know, not not be this big deal. I love lesson planning for all grades, but definitely K one. I could do it all day long.
1: <laughs> There's an acknowledged push this year from schools to address student mental health and look at things like how playtime and recess, you know, affect academics. Uh, how is the museum positioned to support school curriculums this year?
2: Well, that's a really good question and one I could probably talk to you about forever. You know, since the pandemic, we've also heard a lot about learning loss. And I like to push back on learning loss because when things are, when content is being taught through play and when multiple exposures are happening, it's stored into our long-term memory, right? It's tactile play. Um, If I were to ask you what's your first play memory, you'd be able to pull it out your back pocket with no problem. Um, and so now we're getting to a space, especially you know educators, where we're like, okay, we need to get out of one way of doing something. We need to get out of a book to teach a child how to do something. And I I I love books. I think books are very very important. But being able to play on top of literacy practices, on top of multiple exposures, is really important. I think using the museum as a tool as an educator one of the best things that you're going to be able to do is because it takes the learning live. it makes it real it makes it tactical and it makes it sticky so when when kids come to the museum and i have the opportunity a part of my job is to organize large school groups large field trips The light on students' faces when they're learning about um, the 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 metamorphosis of butterflies, or playing with setting, or learning world languages um, by going to the Wegman supermarket—you know, those are the sort of experiences that. You won't experience learning loss because it was an experience that's 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 sensational, right? We're tapping into all of the senses. And so it's it's learning that's happening and it's stored into long-term memory. And that's what we want for students. I think the best part about the museum is that we're also an intellectual space. So I work with a lot of educators in our area to look at our common core state standards and to say, Okay, the standards, they're telling us what to teach, um, but they're not telling us how to teach it. You can absolutely teach a child, you know, one-to-one correspondence or math or cardinality, but you can do it in a way that's playful. And so then when you do that, you're less likely to run into learning loss, I'm air quoting, because it's joyful, and you're cultivating joy, and it's no longer a standard. We're no longer teaching a standard, but we're not. We're now teaching a pursuit, and so you can never run out of um, playful activities to, to to teach a student a, a standard. And I think that's one of the best parts about the museum is that those that 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 is the pillars that we stand on, those are the ones that we're yelling from the mountaintops about is that there's, there is a way to do play and there's a way to do learning at the same time, and they're both often synonymous with one another. Learning is play and play is learning.
1: There's so much on display at The Strong about the evolution of play, and a couple of things that stood out to me as highlights were the timeline of 100 years of how dolls have evolved and, and then maybe looking at, um, you know, advancements in technology for video games. What do you see as some of the profound progressions of play?
2: yeah I would definitely i I understand the cross comparison, but I also think so in the example of doll play, yes, dolls, you know, the aesthetics, the phenotype, the look, those things we've have some, we've had some diversity around that. and there has, of course, been some evolution that we've seen. Um, but what you don't get to see by looking at a doll display case is how that play thing is being used and who is it being used by so, even ten years ago, it would be completely taboo and pr- problematic for um, a boy to be playing with a doll, right? Like that would be like, no, nope, boys play with trucks, and the the dolls are for for the girls. But what you what's so exciting to be able to get to see, and what I get to facilitate a lot, is encouraging all children to play with dolls. And then when you open that up, the conversations are so, so rich. You learn more about their families, um, the different family structures. We're not just learning about nuclear families anymore through doll play. We're starting to see dolls that are um, being incorporated by two kids that are playing and there's two moms or there's two dads or um, it's grandma and grandpa. And so the language that happens in doll play has evolved in a way that isn't visually um, observable in the way that the progression of uh, video gaming is. And so I know what you're talking about, that long timeline um, and high score, you get to see that. And you visually, you you see that too with dolls and how they've changed over time. But I think one of my favorite things to bring out um, in the conversation of how are we using playthings and how are they evolving? I think a lot of it is the language use that that we're starting to see and some of the social barriers that children are challenging through doll play. The questions that they're asking, why does this doll have this kind of body? Why am I only seeing one kind of doll? I'm not seeing a doll that uses a wheelchair as a a source of uh, transportation. What about dolls that um, uh, wear hijabs? I'm not seeing this representation. And so it's a nice opportunity for kids to clash with the status quo to ask questions, and then to redesign what it is that they want to see. So that's kind of the rub there with doll play for me.
1: Walking around the museum, there's literally hundreds of different exhibits, and no two interactions were the same. Uh, But one constant that I found throughout the museum that was really cool was books everywhere, and like bookshelves in every, almost on every wall that kind of complemented Uh, the theme of what was going on in that room. Can you talk a little bit about the museum's library system and books as a tool of play?
2: That is very intentional. So we know that literacy is playful. Playful literacies in the body of research that has been given to us by dynamic scholars over the last 30 years have talked to us about the importance of literacy and it being playful. If you know how to use books also as playthings, and so that's one of my favorite parts about the libraries uh, in this in the separate exhibits is because it does scaffold what you're seeing. So when you walk into Reading Adventureland, you're seeing all of these mystical creatures and all of these fairy tales. Well, the best way to walk out with something is with an artifact. And what was the best artifact? A book and a book that's brightly colored and is detailed. And so that's a really nice partnership that we have and being able for uh, families to check out books, especially, you know, students, sometimes are not drawn to a book, but they might be drawn to an exhibit and then they wanna know more about that exhibit. And so being able to walk away with a book and having your caregiver read a book with you and kind of take that learning uh, continuously on with you, that's one of my favorite features of, of our exhibits. You know, the American Journal of Play I, as as a researcher, I think that's one of our greatest gems that we have at the museum is to say that we are also play authorities in the realm of understanding what are play scholars doing? What are they saying? What innovations do they have? it it requires us to maintain our expertise in um, the research of play, um, but then across disciplines. And so our understanding is quite comprehensive because we do have the American Journal of Play in our backyard. We all get the issues, we get the special issues. And it's a really nice way for us to be able to connect with scholars that are doing amazing work in, our, you know, in, our, in the play realm for us to make sure that we are also staying on top of the, the new thought, the new innovation, and so that we can maintain our own play literacies.
1: My children and I spent two days at the museum and didn't explore everything that there was to explore there and are very much looking forward to returning. But until that day, any recommendations to enhance the day-to-day level of play at home?
2: we think that it has to be this big thing. We think that we have to have all of the Melissa and Doug toys, that we have to have all the Fisher-Price things. And I'm here, if I'm the only person to say that's not what you need um, to make play playful at home. What you need to be playful at home are adult caregivers asking playful questions, um, making sure that the 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 home is set up for play to happen, messy play, um, risky play. Um, it it I, I more so I think we have to let go of some of our attachments um, as caregivers. What does a home look like? What should our homes feel like? What sort of things should we have in our home? Are we prioritizing this thing over another thing? And at what expense does it cost us by requiring our children to sit at the table for dinner time until they finish everything off their plate? How can you make eating more playful? How can you make the conversations that you have on the way home more playful? Um, You know, something that I was doing with my niece when I saw her was, so she was, It was very obvious that she was just newly into shapes. And so she was out in the Hasbro game park and she had said, oh, look, it's a circle. And I'm like, great, let's find all of the circles in the Hasbro game park. And to a a four-year-old, like that's like, oh my gosh, we're going to go on a scavenger hunt for all of the circle shapes in this amazing space. right? And that was a simple prompt. And it lasted her probably 30 minutes. She's playing with the Connect Four. She's finding the merry-go-round. And she's like, the merry-go-round goes in a circle. So all of those things matter. We as a people can definitely do a better job of enticing inquiry. And inquiry is also playful. I think it's as simple as just asking really good questions and, of course, letting go of some of our attachments, uh, what we think home looks like or what it should sound like or what it should feel like.
1: And how about for our next history museum trip that doesn't have a 18-foot fire-breathing dragon? Any tips to engage the imagination in less traditionally playful spaces?
2: Well, that's a good question. So the other history museums that I have been to myself are not as playful right there are there are less playful artifacts there's less climbing structures there's less fire breathing dragons chances are there's not a life size um donkey kong game but again i really think that you know self expression is playful if they see a portrait and it it can be something. Let's, let's this is the Mona Lisa, right? I saw the Mona Lisa and I was very underwhelmed. I was like, "This is not what I expected." I thought it was going to be this big, huge thing. And then as I'm thinking, I'm like, "Well, wow! If I if I had to create my own self portrait, this is what I would want it to look like. This is what I would want it to say about me. These are the different mediums that I would use. I would use oil pastels. I might throw some glitter on there. I might do some feathers." And so I think it is just continuing to entice your children to think about, you are a creator in this world. What you have to say is so powerful. You are a producer. And your voice is worthy to be listened to. So even if it's just rewriting their own narratives, if you were to collect um, artifacts for your own history museum, what sort of artifacts would you collect? Why would you collect those artifacts? Why are they important to you? All those things are still very playful. It's playing a different sense, but it's still incredibly playful.
1: The major expansion to the museum was finalized at the end of June. Now with school back in session comes the return of the class field trip.
2: Absolutely. Please contact me if you want to send your kiddos to the Strong Museum. Um, We have uh, 15 amazing school lessons. They are all aligned with our common core state standards and our next gen science standards. They are also aligned with New York State DEAI standards. And so there's a huge component of diversity, equity and inclusion in each lesson plan that is offered here at the museum. I would say that if you um, are unable to come to the museum, you can also take these experiences live in your own classroom by building knowledge. And the best way to build knowledge is by creating um, joyful spaces for kiddos to learn in. And it, it really is as simple as reminding yourself, you know, we have state standards and whether you love them or not, they're telling you what to teach. They're not telling you how to teach it pull out the blocks, pull out the Play-Doh, pull out the cubes, pull out the sensory play. And I promise you, you will see students that uh, you might've been worried about um, as far as social emotional skills, how are they feeling about themselves? You will see them light up. You will see them engage. You will see them access parts of themselves and pull on um, skills that they, they didn't currently have, but through play they were able to work on them because you provided them with the context to be playful. Um, that's definitely the, the the advice that I would be giving if I was in a, in a school uh, supporting, you know, K-12 educators.
1: The Strong offers so many opportunities to engage with the history of play. What does the future of play look like at the museum?
2: The future of play at the museum is continuous. We are constantly thinking of the new thing. Um, we're constantly thinking of, how can we, um, you know, heighten an experience? How can we make something more playful? As far as our school year goes, I'm planning this to be the most fun, playful school year ever. I say that every single year. Um, I've said that as a kindergarten teacher, I've said it in the capacity that I am right now supporting our Woodbury School. We're constantly thinking about the next playful thing.
0: That's Strong Museum of Play Executive Director Tiana Velasquez-Smith speaking with the best of our knowledges, Jody Cowan. After two college-in-prison programs in New York hosted by private universities collapsed earlier this year, Bard College will pick up the slack. The Bard Prison Initiative has been enrolling incarcerated students for more than 25 years. BPI Executive Director Max Kenner spoke with WAMC's Hudson Valley Bureau Chief and host of National Productions' sister program, 51%, Jesse King.
3: Nationally, higher education is in crisis. And unfortunately, in New York, we have a situation where we have had two local colleges or universities completely fold in the last uh, few months. Medi, a Catholic college uh, out in western New York, and Alliance University, formerly known as NIAC, uh, here in the Hudson Valley. Both of those colleges, Madai and NIAC, were offering college and prison programs, in prisons where BARD also offered college. So as those colleges folded and went out of business, we felt an obligation to enroll all of their students who wanted to transfer directly to BARD, and that's what we did, increasing our enrollment uh, by 80 students, uh, just transferring students uh, at those two institutions. This year we will hit roughly 400 Uh, students at BPI, BART undergraduates who are enrolled within the New York state prison system.
0: And what kind of expansions were needed to make this possible to accept these transfers?
3: Look, we needed to expand our administration. We needed to hire more faculty and we needed to spend money that still needs to be raised. But when you enroll students, you make a commitment to seeing them through a degree uh, that can't always be fulfilled if the university completely disappears. So as an institution, uh, that runs in these prisons, we felt the responsibility to take on those students when other colleges could not. And so it was the right thing to do. How mm-hmm. we pay for it remains to be seen.
0: Were Medai and Alliance offering, I guess, like different studies of programs? Like, will you be offering different courses now as well?
3: There were some courses of study that Medai or Alliance offered that we do not, but that's okay. The vast majority of credits will transfer. Uh, and we will place students in degree-granting programs, and the courses of study that they will do with Bard again will resemble a full breadth of liberal study: math, science, foreign language, history, politics, theology, you name it. Students who are in prison are interested, curious, and ambitious in that full breadth of fields. People often assume when they imagine college students in prisons that they're only interested in or capable of certain kinds of work, and that is completely incorrect. We have students who study Mandarin or German language, advanced mathematics, biology, not to mention the full breadth of the humanities uh, and social sciences.
0: You mentioned that how you're paying for all this sort of remains to be seen. When it comes to fundraising, what are your options there? Do you have like a specific campaign in mind we're coming up?
3: We are very lucky in the federal government Uh, And in New York State, we have in the last two or three years removed the bans that were made at the peak of the tough and crime frenzy in federal and state level support for these kinds of students. So the burden of fundraising is less than it would have been four or five years ago. But we're an institution uh, that is in the business of fundraising, raising private money. We will seek that support um, from the state, from the feds, and from individual donors if possible. But the first thing we have to do is operate college campuses within the prisons that honors the ambition and curiosity of the students there.
0: How are things at Bard as a whole as a college? Art is thriving as an institution,
3: but the irony that's most relevant to this conversation is the paradox that nationally, higher education, college education, is in a state of crisis. And there is a crisis of confidence that the kind of education that has been central to American democracy for 200 years is somehow no longer relevant in ways that it used to be. And the paradox is that when we go out to find students who feel real meaning and connection to this kind of education, it's a tragedy. But in our state prison system, we find students with extraordinary not only capacity, but curiosity ambition, and commitment to one another. So as we begin to rebuild higher education in America, we need to do it in unconventional ways that challenge us as people and as institutions and go to places where we always haven't. And the prisons are the first
0: best place to start. Max Kenner, Executive Director of the Bard Prison Initiative, speaking with Jesse King. This has been The Best of Our Knowledge, episode 1724. The Best of Our Knowledge is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Thanks to associate producer Jody Cowan. The latest on all national productions programs is available via the Airwaves newsletter and our flagship station's website, wamc.org. Until next time, I'm Lucas Willard.